we are continuing on in our story, our story art, the accounts of Jesus through the book of John, with this theme in mind, life in Jesus, the Son of God. That's why John wrote the gospel, that we would see that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. As John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And something you'll notice throughout the book of John is it's made up, especially here in these first few parts that we've been through, it's made up over and over again of these interactions that Jesus has with people and the teachings about eternity that come out in these things. Just a few weeks ago, we were looking at an interaction that Jesus had with a religious leader of Israel. His name is Nicodemus. And talking to him about man's greatest need, the need for new birth in himself. And then uh, he went on to explain the great love of God because of that. And now, in John chapter 4, we come to yet another one of these interactions that Jesus has with someone. We're never told this woman's name. She's just simply known as the woman at the well. That's typically how she's referred to throughout the scripture or throughout history after the scripture passage. And so we're going to look at these first 26 verses over the next couple of weeks, okay? It's going to take us some time uh, to kind of to kind of understand and, and, and unpack these 26 verses and see what, what Jesus tells her about with this idea of, of living water of eternal life. And then we see the impact that that makes on her life and the lives of those who are connected with her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open our time. Father, we... Thank you for the word of God and its power to change our lives. Lord, we are so thankful that it's not, it's not up to a person to change someone else. It's your work. As we see in this passage before us how, how you spoke to this woman about the need that she had for eternity and showed her that the place that need was met was in yourself. And Lord, we ask today you would direct our hearts through your word to Jesus. For the soul who, who is searching, who isn't sure about where they'll spend eternity, who wrestles with it, who, who tries to, to, to hide it with other pursuits in life, Lord, would you show them the hope of Jesus Christ? For Christians today, Lord, would you show us the need uh, to share the news of the gospel with other people and the need for us in our own lives to not find our hope or our confidence or our happiness in anywhere but in you alone, the source of all things. And Lord, we just pray that today you would have free reign in our hearts to do what you want to do and what only you can do and make us more like Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. It, it doesn't matter where you are, or who you are, or where you come from, there are some basic needs that all people in life have because we are human beings. I've had the privilege over the years um, to travel to to other countries, most of the time uh, on mission trips, to go and visit, um, take some of our teenagers as a youth pastor or as a teenager going to visit these missionaries we support and, and see the work and be a part of the work for a short time. And, and I've observed that when I am in these other places, these other countries even, I've observed that, that people in those countries don't only need to eat and drink like I do, but they also like to enjoy that experience. 
You ever traveled and found out that that's a basic need, right? I mean, you're like, no duh, right? But, but it, 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 what a strange world it would be to enter another country where people didn't feel the need to partake of nourishment and refreshment. They just existed all the time, right? Something like eating a meal or drinking water or, or another beverage, it, it connects us with other people. Why? Because that is a core experience of being human. We're going to do a great Baptist thing today and have a lunch after church today, right? And that, that connects us not only as humans, but, but as, as a body of Christ uh, doing these things together. These similar needs that humans have, they run deeper, though, than the physical world of sustenance. There are greater, more personal needs that we as human beings have in our spiritual lives. You see, you and I, we are made with an immaterial soul that longs for satisfaction And over the years, many have tried to satiate themselves and to fill their lives with a million different ideas to meet this spiritual need. Jesus, as God, is our creator. He knows exactly what we're made of, and he knows what will meet our deepest needs. In fact, it is he who can meet those needs as our savior from sin. And in this passage before us, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider the living water of eternal life that Jesus offers, not only to the woman that he meets here at this physical well, but also to all mankind today. And what we see is this, that Jesus is the only source to meet the need that all mankind experiences, eternal satisfaction and security in him as the eternal Savior. You and I have the same eternal spiritual need. And you and I can only have that need met in Jesus Christ. And you and I as Christians can only continue to enjoy all the riches and the and, and joy of Jesus Christ as we continue to walk in him and do the things he's called us to do. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so this plays out before us here in the account from Jesus' life as Jesus leaves the area of Judea and leaves to go to Galilee. If you'll remember um, a couple of times ago, well, it's probably more than a couple now, but we, we were in Jerusalem with Jesus because he was there for the Passover and he cleansed the temple and he did many signs and wonders. And people were professing belief in him, though they did not really truly believe in him. And it is while he was in Jerusalem that he was approached by Nicodemus with those questions. And Jesus shared with him the, the need for new birth and the love of God. And then last week, we saw, uh, or last time we talked, we saw um, the, the, the testimony of John the Baptist that, that Jesus is the Messiah who has come, and he must increase. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease, because his job was to bring people to the Messiah. And so when that happened, Jesus is, is north of Jerusalem in the wilderness of Judea, and then we see the, 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 what's going to happen here in, in the setting of our story. As Jesus is leaving Judea, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go 
through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here you, you have Jesus in his departure from Judea into Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. So here's Jesus preaching a message of repentance from sin. Obviously, his message is going to have a fuller and deeper fulfillment in himself as he would be the one who would die for the sins of mankind and and rise again to give eternal life. But his disciples are all the while baptizing those who come, expressing this and recognizing their need for repentance from sin. And as we noted at the end of John chapter 3, Jesus' popularity is growing And we notice now that there's another group. It's not just John's disciples that have begun to take notice of what's going on. But you see here in verse uh, 1 that the Pharisees are beginning to take notice. And I I spoke to you when we talked about Nicodemus about who the Pharisees were and and what they did. And it's safe to say, you know, or or suffice to say that they're they're part of the religious hierarchy of Israel. And and the, the, the man that the religious leaders of Israel questioned about his identity as the possible Messiah, that was John the Baptist, they questioned him in John chapter 1, is now falling behind, so, to, so as it were, into the shadow of another. And so this undoubtedly will begin to raise questions and confrontations. Um, in the view of the Sanhedrin, which is the governing body of Israel, Jesus' popularity overshadowing John the Baptist is not making things better, it's only making things worse. And that's their view on it. And so Jesus, as God knows these things and and, and hears of these things, and so he departs from Judea and begins to make his way north to Galilee. Because the plan of God did not yet include Jesus' confrontation with the religious hierarchy. One day, that confrontation would come and it would serve its role in the eternal plan of God to bring about the salvation of mankind. But today was not the day for that. You see, everything in God's plan has an appointed time. The plan of redemption was not plan B when it came to God. God knew about the redemption of mankind in eternity past. The thousands of years between the fall of man and the coming of the Messiah, they they weren't there because God was, was wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do. No, he planned that long, long ago when there was no time. Jesus would carry out this plan as was intended, for he is God. And so Jesus departs. And we learned here at the end of verse 4 that he needed to go through Samaria because um, this Galilee is located in the northern part of Israel while Judea is in the south. And so at best, this area of Samaria has become a sore spot in the nation of Israel. When the nation of Israel, if you'll remember back to the Old Testament, after King Solomon died, his son took over the kingdom, and under his son, it wasn't very, it didn't take very long, the, the nation of Israel split into two separate kingdoms. You have a northern kingdom, which became known as Israel, and a southern kingdom, which became known as Judah. Israel was made up of ten tribes, Judah was made up of two tribes. And in the southern kingdom of Judah uh, was the capital of the entire, what had been the capital of the entire nation was Jerusalem. And so, um, one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel established a new city as the capital of that nation. We read about this in 1 Kings 16, 24. 
And he bought the hill of Samaria from Shamer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shamer, owner of the hill. So the name of the city, Samaria, that was the capital of that northern kingdom of Israel, eventually became used, became known as, as kind of the, the whole title for the area. It was sometimes just the whole area was referred to Samaria, that northern part, that northern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom of Israel went on for, for, for quite a while, had no godly kings. You ever heard of a guy named Ahab and his wife Jezebel? Okay. Just the name probably goes, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound. You never, you never run anybody who names their kid Jezebel, right? Okay. And I don't think anybody here has, so we're safe, right? Um, because there's never anything good, right? There's some of those names like that, right? That, they're associated with the northern kingdom of Israel. It's, it's kings like that. That were, that were kings of that northern kingdom. And God promised that if his people strayed from him, he would deliver them into judgment. And in 722 BC, he did just that. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. We read in 2 Kings 17, 5 through 6, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried, away, and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala by the harbor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. God, as he promised, delivered his people into captivity because of their disobedience. And, it, and once the people of Israel went into captivity, the trouble only grew greater in the land of Israel. Because here's what happened. The, the Assyrian Empire, they, they captured the people of Israel. They took many of the people away. But then they didn't take all the people away. And then they're an empire. So they have many different countries and many different regions that are under their rule. So they would take people from other areas and they would resettle them back into the area of Samaria. Okay, so now it's not just the Israelites who live there in that northern part. It's other people from areas around them as well. And so these people lived in the land. And then what begins to happen and where the real trouble happens is that they begin to intermarry with the Israelites. Now we look at that and say, well, what's the big deal? Well, you have to go back to the law of God to understand that God had strictly forbidden his people not to intermarry with people outside of their own nation. He warned the Israelites that doing so would turn their hearts away from him and lead them into the sin of idolatry. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. And so, this intermarried people were no longer known as Israelites. They became known as the Samaritans. Now, over time, the Samaritans abandoned their idols and they began to come back to the Lord. But there were some differences in the way they believed. For one, the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, typically sometimes called the law. Um, It was written by Moses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so because of this, we'll get more into to some of this next week when we see some of the discussion that Jesus and this woman have, but they, they built a temple to worship God in their own territory on a mountain known as Mount Gerizim. Now, all the while they're doing this, 
the Jews, the, the, the southern kingdom, eventually went into captivity and was returned. They were under captivity of the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire. They returned, and, and they built, rebuilt the temple where God had told them to build it, which was in the city of Jerusalem, which is the center of, of God's worship. And so you can imagine that as the people returned from captivity in Babylon and exile, they, were viewed, they viewed the Samaritans with contempt. They, they literally branded these people as half-breeds, and animosity ran strong between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, it's actually what happened um, in the 2nd century B.C. The temple that the Samaritans had built on Mount Gerizim was destroyed by the Jews. However, the Samaritans continued to worship God on that mountain. And so just, just kind of some brief highlights to help you understand some of the context here. Let's fast forward to when Jesus is there. When Jesus is, is, is there, the Roman Empire is ruling the land. And Judea, which is the southern part of Israel, and Samaria are under the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire doesn't view them any differently. They're, just, they're, they're all one, basically. All, all the same. It's all part of that nation of Israel. And they're not treated any differently. But the tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans are still very, very high. They, they exist. And so Jews who were traveling north or south through Israel, because it seems like up in Galilee and, and other parts of the, king, of, of, the, of the empire, obviously there are, there are still Jews that live and come and worship the Lord as, as he commanded. When the Jews would travel north or south between Judea and other parts, a lot of times uh, they would not go through Samaria. Instead, what they would do, as you were looking at a map, uh, uh, Jerusalem's kind of on the east part of Judea. They would go up, and when they got to Samaria, or towards Samaria, they would cross over the Jordan River, go out into Gentile territory, go up to the Gentile territory, and then come back in around Samaria. So they literally would do everything they could. They would even walk to them. That was a big thing. They would go into the Gentile, the land of the Gentiles. Then they would rather walk through the land of Samaria. Now, that wasn't always the case because it was significantly shorter for them to just to cut through Samaria. And we do read that at times, especially like when Passover, people would still go through Samaria, but then there were those who wouldn't. And so I say all that just to under, uh, so we can understand some of the prejudices that existed in Jesus' day that are going to color the account here, okay? But that helps us to help you understand a little bit of what's going on and why this is such a shocking thing. Because we read in verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, over the years, the argument has certainly been made that because Jesus' superior knowledge as God, Jesus, Jesus needed to go through Samaria that day because he knew he needed to talk to the woman at the well. And I'm not knocking where that comes from because certainly Jesus is God and he did know that. But just understand that phrase, but he needed to go through Samaria, does not inherently mean that he had to do that because it was a divine compulsion. It literally is just a phrase that is used. It says, if you want to get from point A to point B, this is the way you had to go. Now, it, is, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is God and he knew who he would encounter that day. And as he travels... We see the stop that is made. We see the stop in Samaria. Jesus and his disciples arrive in a city in Samaria that's known as Sychar. And it is near, we're told it's near the city that Jacob, 
bought land near the city of Shechem when he returned from Haran. In Genesis, we read the story of Jacob, who is one of the patriarchs of Israel. In fact, he is the one whose name was changed to Israel, and he is the one whose 12 sons became the 12 tribes of, of the nation of Israel. And, and when he, he left, after he tricked his brother Esau, he fled to the land of Haran, where his mother was from, um, to, and, he, and there he, he married, well, he ended up marrying four women, um, and if you think you have home problems, okay, read Jacob's story sometime, all right? Um, and, and when he comes back, he comes back to near this area of Shechem and buys some land there. This is where Jesus is in that, in that region. And it's on that land, we're not told in the Bible about, about how, when this happened, we're, the only time is here, uh, that Jacob apparently built a well there. And wells are very important, especially when a guy like Jacob who has a lot of flocks and, and herds and things that he has to look after, and, and you're in a desert climate, um, and you don't want to fight for water with people if you can help it. So Jacob built, dug his own well in this area. And we actually, through tradition and history, we know exactly, with, pretty much with absolute certainty, where this well is today. It's actually still there in the land of Israel. There's actually an Orthodox church that's been basically built around the well. It's kind of a cool thing. If you go look it up, you can see there it is. Just, and it, you know, we get this idea of what, what it may have looked like. You know, you ever seen the pictures, like with the bricks around it and all that? It's a hole in the ground with some rocks. It's, it's really, that's what it is. Um, now, it's a pretty deep well. It's, about a, it's, it's actually over 100 feet deep. And so it is here that Jesus came and he rested because he was wearied from his journey. It's something that we should note. The gospel writers never failed to communicate both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. Therefore, he experienced everything we experience as humans. Yesterday, uh, we had the opportunity, Ty and Brittany hosted uh, the, the youth, some of the youth and, and other folks from the church to play football at their house yesterday. And uh, man, I, I tell you what, after a couple of games, I, I was tired and needed to rest, right? I just, it makes me feel old to go out there and do that. I'm not that old, right? But we had a great time out there. But, but I woke up this morning, I definitely felt it a little bit, right? As human beings, these are some of the things that we experience. Jesus fully God and fully man, he had walked all this way and up through Samaria. He was wearied from his journey. So therefore, he sat down here by the well to rest. And John tells us that uh, the disciples are, are going away to, to buy food. We'll see that here in, in verse 7, just a minute. But it's about the sixth hour that this happens. Now, again, we're not entirely sure if John, having written later, is, is referring to the Roman method of timekeeping or the Jewish method. So if it was the Roman method of timekeeping, he's either talking about 6 a.m., 6 p.m. If it's the Jewish method of timekeeping, it's, it's noon. Now, 6 a.m. really doesn't seem to fit the context of what we're talking about here. Most likely, these, these men would not have walked throughout the night. And so more likely is, is either at noon or at six in the evening, and both fit the context quite well here, that they would have been walking for, for a long time and would need to rest and need food and water. And as Jesus rests, we do see the divine appointment that takes place beginning with the Samaritan that Jesus meets. And so today we'll see the Samaritan that Jesus has an interaction with. And it really is a shocking interaction. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here we learn that the disciples are out on a quest. They have to go find some food that they can have something to eat. And, and while they're off seeing to, their, to the physical needs of the group, Jesus engages one to address her spiritual need. And it really begins in a culturally shocking way because as this woman approaches the well to draw water, Jesus requests a drink from her. And again, we think, what's the big deal? Well, it really is a surprising thing because not only is she a Samaritan, you might have picked up on those tensions already, but, but you do need to understand she's a woman. And this, in this culture, in this day, this was unheard of because men and women did not converse in public. Men didn't even speak to their own wives in public. It's just the way that, this, that the people in this culture operated. So Jesus, a rabbi of Israel, shattered all the barriers here. Why? To reach a needy soul. Now, he did not do it in a sinful way, but in a way that showed the message of salvation is greater than what is considered the norm, right? It might have been the norm that Pharisee or that, 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 that men and women didn't speak. It doesn't mean Jesus can't reach this woman. It might have been the norm that Jews and Samaritans experienced tensions, but that didn't stop Jesus. And so... Jesus begins to speak to this woman, and we get this phrase uh, that for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, this phrase is, again, another interesting phrase, because really the meaning behind this phrase is that Jews do not use the same utensils as the Samaritans. Because we already know, where have the disciples gone? They've gone to buy food. So Jews and Samaritans have some sort of dealings in some way. Obviously, these men were presumably still in a Samaritan town buying food from Samaritans. So they have some sort of dealings. But, but when you begin to look at this phrase and the Greek behind it, you begin to understand that, 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 that the, the idea here is that Jews and Samaritans didn't use the same utensils or the same, um, the, the, the same things that, that they used, like the water pot here, to drink from. The view of Samaritan women in particular by the leading Jewish religious leaders would be this, that, that the, to use the water pot or other utensils from one of them would make someone unclean before God. And then throughout the Jewish law, being clean or unclean is a big thing. And of course, this is something that, that the, the religious leaders have read into or put on top of the law of God. Well, Jesus, as God, makes the unclean clean. That's true both of man-made things and the things God established. Because throughout the law of God, you read things like he who touches a leper right, would be considered unclean. Guess who Jesus touched many times over? The lepers. The one who touches the dead body would be unclean. Guess who touched dead bodies and, and actually raised people from the dead? It's Jesus. And he would not be declared unclean, for he is God. And here, he shows his superiority to the law of God and the law of man as the living word. But that doesn't mean the woman isn't taken aback by what she experiences. But something you're going to notice throughout this passage, she's not afraid. She actually has quite a bit of things to say here. She expresses her, her shock here as his request for a drink because she is a woman and a Samaritan. And Jesus takes this simple earthly request then, and begins to use it to show his infinite wisdom and power. We see the superb offer that Jesus makes to this woman in these verses. Jesus answered and said to her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus often used physical, what we may call mundane illustrations to to illustrate the eternal heavenly truths of God. He did that to help us to understand these things because all is made by God and therefore it is all able to be used by God to help us know him more. But we do see that many struggle time and again to get beyond the earthly and understand what Jesus is saying. Do you remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a man consumed with, with earthly things. And he was really baffled by that whole statement that you must be born again. And he just really struggled to grasp what it was that Jesus was trying to say to him. And Jesus continued to patiently work with him and show him the love of God. And, and here again... You know, Jesus is going to work with this woman to show her these things. But, but the hardness of heart against what Jesus was calling them to do often led to their missing what he was really saying. You see that all throughout the Gospels. But to the seeking heart, Jesus was always willing to continue to pour in time and continued explanation and investment. And so, Jesus begins to delve into the needs of the woman standing before him by turning the tables. She had come to the well that day and had run across a man who physically was thirsty. He had been walking, he was wearied, he needed refreshment. But in reality, she was experiencing a greater need with that of her spiritual thirst. Jesus declares to this woman that if she only knew who it was who was sitting before her, and if she recognized the gift of God that was available through him, that is eternal life, she would have instead asked him for a drink, and he would give to her living water. The gift that Jesus referred to is that gift of salvation from sin. It is an eternal peace with God and an eternity secured in him. And see, in the past, God had condemned the nation of Israel for their forsaking of him and the hope that he could offer. We read the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The people of Israel had rejected what is essentially a running supply of water in God, and instead turning to their own selves to meet their own needs and desires. And what God said to the prophet is not only is that a stagnant source of water because a cistern is just a hole that you would dig in the ground and then you would you would you would inlay it with some rock or other things to keep the water in and not only is it stagnant but it is also unsustainable because as is pictured here the cisterns are broken and so the water goes in and it runs out and it's a picture of the spiritual fulfillment that people were seeking outside of God See, only in God can we truly be fulfilled spiritually, and only in God can we truly know peace, and only in God can we experience this time after time after time as living waters. 
And here we see where the picture deepens in what Jesus said because that term is used here by Jesus. He said that, that, that uh, he would have, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Physically, that, that, that word living carries more than one meaning. So physically, it carries the idea of bubbling. And when it's used that way, you talk about a living spring or living water bubbling, it's the idea that it's constantly fed. Like what would be at the bottom of that well, 100 feet into the ground, there would be some kind of spring that would be there feeding it over and over again. It's not a place where you got water from somewhere else, like a cistern, and you came and dumped it as a holding place, but it's a place where the water would actually come from. It is the water that comes from a source that continues to feed in, like this well that Jesus was sitting at that's still present to this day. Jesus used it, though, to refer to the satisfaction this woman could find in her soul through himself. And as we have seen before in Jesus' interactions, the object of Jesus' love and teaching runs with the physical definition. She, uh, she here doesn't see the spiritual side of things, but she, she thinks physically of the well at which they're standing at. And so she notes that it's physically impossible for Jesus to give her the water he speaks of. Again, I told you that Jacob's well is, is over 100 feet deep, and she just observes. I mean, how are you going to, to get this water? You don't have, the idea here is you don't have a bucket. You don't have anything to stick down in there to draw water up out and give it to me. How are you going to give me this living water? Physically, one would need something to retrieve that fresh water. And she failed to realize that Jesus was offering her was something that was far more than physical help. It was instead an incredible spiritual transformation. It is that which would meet the deepest desires of her heart that she had tried and failed to meet. Jesus is the fulfillment of the words of David, Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. A well in the desert was the difference between life and death. Jesus is the difference between eternal death and eternal separation and damnation for sin. And in considering what Jesus has said and the impossibility of this statement, did you notice the next statement this woman throws out? She, she looks at him and says, you don't have anything to draw with. Then look what she says in verse 17. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank for him, from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? This, uh, this statement, you go back again to the Greek, this is a rhetorical statement. She is asking if Jesus is greater than Jacob who first dug the well. And it's intended to be met with a negative answer. It's the way she asked the question. You ever ask somebody rhetorically, you know, maybe your kids or your spouse or somebody else, something, you, and the answer is supposed to be no, right? That's exactly what this is supposed to be. Hey, are you greater than Jacob? And it's kind of ironic, Right? Because now she's wrong two times over. Because not only is the living water not found in the well, but the one who is standing before her is far greater than Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The deliverer promised to come from the family of this revered patriarch is now standing at that patriarch's well offering her eternal life. What an incredible fulfillment of the scriptures. I mean, just to look at, at the things that God has said all throughout the Old Testament and what God promised to do through the family of Jacob and then to see Jesus himself standing at the well that Jacob had dug, offering this woman 
the fulfillment of these things. What incredible grace. And Jesus continues to unfold the truth of what he is offering, answering the woman's skepticism. The physical water before them in the well would meet the need of a weary and thirsty person, but that need would resurface time and again. How many of you have ever been so thirsty you just needed something to drink? And you thought, well, I'll never need that again, right? Well, it happens again and again and again. It doesn't matter how many times she came back to that well, she would need to come back. However, the water of spiritual life that Jesus offered her would meet the need once and for all. You see, Jesus doesn't offer you something to add to your list of good deeds. He doesn't offer you another God. He doesn't even offer you another list of things to do. He offers you the one and only solution for your sin. He offers you eternal life in himself. And you know, sin in our lives is often just seeking satisfaction anywhere other than in God. I mean, you could trace a lot of our sin, probably most if not all of it, back to this, we seek satisfaction in something other than God. Um, you, you, you know, something happens in your life, and you lie, you know, you're, you're asked, okay, we'll go with our kids, right? Your kids, you know, you do something you knew you shouldn't have done, and mom and dad say, hey, don't do that, and they ask you about it, and you lie, right? Well, what at that moment are you seeking? Well, you're seeking fulfillment, a thing you weren't supposed to, and now you're lying to cover it up. Uh, you, 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 um... You know, I'm really bad at coming up with sins on the spot here today, okay? In your own mind, right? Come up with something in your life and the need it is that you want to meet and realize that, that really at the end of it all, you want that satisfaction from whatever that was and you do anything to get it. Maybe it's the, 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 the TV or whatever your neighbor has. and You begin to covet and desire those things. It's that, that satisfaction that you want. It's the relationship that, that, you, that you think you must have in order to be happy. So you'll do anything it takes to hold on to it. It leads to these sins. And, and so we fill our lives with so many things looking for meaning. Sometimes we fill our lives with these things just to try to block out the, the, the questions. And Jesus offers a fountain of living water that will take residence in your soul, satiating your spiritual thirst for eternity. And there is nothing but settled rest and peace found in Jesus alone for salvation. And yet, this woman, she continues to have trouble understanding what is offered because her mind is, is only on the water before her. She says in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. And you think, okay, maybe she's, you know, she's starting to get it. Nor come here to draw. She wishes that she would never have to come back to the well again. And, and listen, if we had to go out and get water from the well, I think we'd wish the same thing, Right? How many of you really like the fact that you had that faucet in your home, right? You just turn it on, okay? I see that hint, all right? Carrying the bucket back to the well time and again was inconvenient and it was tiring. She wished to be done with the process. And so 
Jesus is, is going to continue to show her the need of her heart. And, and next time we're going to continue on and see that what he's going to do is show her the sin that he has come to forgive and the life he has come to impart when here is only death on the horizon for a soul lost in that sin. But for today, let us step back and see the incredible offer that Jesus makes to us as he offered this woman. He offers us that which is promised to be ever with us, salvation in himself. He offers to give your life purpose and meaning and, and, and an eternal hope. No matter who you are or where you come from, he can meet the needs that you have in himself. Because Jesus is the only source to meet the need that all mankind experiences, eternal satisfaction and security in him as the eternal Savior. Jesus turned what would be seen as by many in his day as an encounter to be avoided into an opportunity to share the hope of salvation found in himself. The grace of God poured out in Jesus reaches us all. It doesn't matter if you think you're good or you think you're the worst person on earth, Jesus calls to you. There are a lot of things in life that we think will bring us satisfaction, technology, relationships, accomplishments, work, money, recreation, religion, and more are places we turn to find fulfillment. But none of these bring us true satisfaction. If you've ever tried to fill your life with something other than God, you come to find out that it might distract you for a while, but it never takes that need for fulfillment away. After a while, you need something else. After a while, oftentimes, you need something bigger and better and more. Because each and every one of us are created with a God-shaped vacuum in our heart that only God can fill. And at best, these things that we seek only distract us from the needs that they actually can't meet. Only Jesus can do that for you. And if you want to experience true and lasting satisfaction, you need him as your one and only Savior and God. A Christian, you and I, we too can get caught up living for other things. See, life in Jesus isn't some eternal past to do what it is you want to do or live for whatever you desire. But life in Jesus is a call to living for God's glory. So do you find the satisfaction of your soul in Jesus alone or do you live what you may call a curiously empty life? You say, well, I, got, I have Jesus. I know, I know him as my Savior, but I just I can't find meaning. I can't find fulfillment. I feel like I'm just not satisfied. Are you resting in Jesus Christ alone? You know, Christian, God has given us a lot of things on this earth to enjoy. And they make wonderful things to enjoy in him, but they make terrible gods. And there are a lot of Christians who bow down to a lot of altars of a lot of gods. The God of our families, the God of our sports, of our work, the God of our vacations, the God of... And none of these things that I've mentioned are bad things in and of themselves, right? When do they become bad? When we, when we seek to find our satisfaction in them and not enjoy them in the perspective where they belong under our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, I, I challenge us all to continue to evaluate our lives to make him our, 
all in all and the source of all of our life. And like Jesus, we too must see the needs of others around us. This whole story, I give you the whole, the whole context here, again, so that you would understand, and you and I would better understand, that where Jesus went and who Jesus talked to, okay, if someone was a rabbi of his stature and his thing, this is not what they would be doing, right, by man's definition. But God's definition and God's economy is different. He needs us to reach out to those in darkness. He needs us to, to, to reach into the lives of those and befriend them and come alongside them and show them the hope of the gospel. So who is it in your life he needs you to reach? I think it would be hard-pressed to say in a room like this today, we don't have many, maybe hundreds of people represented that we know. Your relatives, your neighbors, your coworker, your teammate. Maybe the kid next door you play with. You know they need the gospel. Will you reach them? And realize it doesn't depend on you and me. It depends on God, right? He has to do the work. But he needs willing servants. He needs us to to speak into their lives to, to show them the love of Christ and to show them his compassion because the compassion of Jesus Christ should become a passion of his own. May the Lord help us in these things today. Father, we are so amazed at the compassion shown to us through Jesus Christ. The mercy, love, and grace that was poured out in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is truly beyond compare. We ask, Lord, that you would challenge our hearts today with these things. That you would help us to look around and see the needs of other people. That you would help us to see not just some physical needs that we can meet, not some act of compassion, though those are certainly things that we should be looking for and things that we could meet, but help us to see beyond that, to see the spiritual needs of other people. Help us to understand that if we know you as Jesus Christ, we can offer them the hope of the gospel. Would you give us the courage and the boldness and the vision to do that? To go forth and make disciples. Lord, we want our church to be consumed with such a thing. Lord, I pray for one who is here today who has not yet acquiesced to you being the Lord and Savior of their lives. They've heard a lot of things about Jesus. They've heard a lot of things about religion. They feel a lot of things in their soul. Maybe they feel like they're not that bad. They feel like they're, they're so bad you couldn't do anything with them. Or they feel indifferent. Or would you continue to hammer away at their heart with the word of God and draw them to yourself and bring them into a relationship with you? Lord, I pray that you would be with Christians today. We, uh, we confess, Lord, that we take our eyes off of you sometimes or we feel like we're just turning in a duty so we can get back to our regularly scheduled programmed lives. Lord, help us not to live that way. Help us to live consumed with the kingdom, that we would live in a way that would honor and glorify you in all we say and do. We pray now you would bless the rest of our day, that we would um, live for you today. We make a difference for you. In your name we pray.